My name is Scott Lawler, and I'm a 35-year veteran of the painting industry where I've been part of growing several multi-million dollar painting companies. I have worn all the hats and have experienced everything you have experienced, are experiencing, or will experience. There is lots of chatter about getting to a million dollars, but what very few focus on is what it takes to blast through Death Valley and create the multi-million dollar company of your dreams. We don't focus on fads, tricks, or shortcuts. We focus on solid foundational business principles and data that deliver results. This is the Consulting for Contractors Beyond a Million Dollar Podcast. All right, today we have Mark Black with Mid and White Painting from Mount Vernon, Illinois with us. If some of you don't know where Mount Vernon is, it's, as a reference, just outside of St. Louis. A little bit more about his market. Mark's been a friend for many years and glad to have him today to just share a little bit about his journey and how he's making it work in small town America. Welcome, Mark. Hey, thank you very much for having me. I'm excited. Awesome. So give me a short version, a little bit of your journey and what got you to Men in White Painting. Boy, to go back to the beginning, I do want to clarify, this is actually my second painting company because I ran the first one into the ground. <laughs> Beautiful. And so this is, Men in White is take two on the painting industry. But I do share that also because there's a lot of people who don't feel like they're successful or feel like if maybe they didn't get it right the first time, that's the end of the story. And it certainly is not. We're a mom and pop me and my wife company from the very beginning back in 2006. We know the meaning of the word grind and we ground from building your reputation one person at a time. We literally drug our children in a wagon to pass out flyers and business cards to neighborhoods. That's how we got our business off the ground. And then of course, doing a great job with each client referrals but that built our business in the early days and we ground through the work to get us to where we are today. Yeah. Awesome. You mentioned you, this is your 2.0. So you had a business. Yeah. Through 2006 to 2008. And then that business was called a, a new hue painting. And unfortunately the recession took its toll on our business. We, we could not make ends meet. We weren't getting any calls. It seemed like the market just pulled back. Nobody was spending money back then during that financial crisis. And it chased me out of the painting business. I took another job, pursued another industry for two years and missed it. To be honest, I learned a lot of lessons in those first two years, started reading some trade magazines and got really excited about what a painting business could be. And that's another reason I'm excited about this podcast to really share vision with people who may be starting out or in the early years or maybe discouraged and depressed just about the industry as a whole, that there are people doing it successfully and you don't have to be super, super large to be super successful. But there are some principles and business strategies that have to be that we'll talk about here in this podcast in order to be successful. The second time around, we strove to do it right. And I promised my wife, if you let me do this one more time, We'll do it right and we'll be successful. And I'm struggling to keep my promise. Beautiful. So when would you say you restarted and opened up Men in White then? Men in White was started in 2011, January 2011. We started this new company, which is hilarious play on our last name, which is Black. And we started Men in White painting. Obviously a play on the movie Men in Black. And I can't tell you how many checks we get written to men in black painting <laughs> all the time. The bank doesn't even question it anymore. But 
we thought it was a funny play on name. Of course, our painters wear white and we thought it was a good name and we get a lot of laugh out of it. Excellent. So 2011, you'd go 2.0, restart. That's right. uh, are you the painter at this point or what's it look like? Yeah. So there was a period of four or five months where I was the only painter, just going back to my old habits of grinding and just working hard. Thankfully, the financial crisis had passed. And so a lot of business, we actually moved back to my hometown to start this business, partially because my family was fairly well known. We, my father had run a successful business here in town. So I felt like the people would be receptive and I'm very thankful that they were. And we were swamped with work. So after a couple months, I did hire my first two employees just for help. And we hit the ground running from there. One of those employees is still with me to this day. Excellent. So just give us a little quick from there to here. That's about 11 years or so. What, was the, what were the growth patterns? What were the plateaus? How did you get here? Yeah. So obviously not enough time to talk in this podcast about <laughs> all the layers that happened in between there. And I, I would advise anybody that's listening, don't give up. Reach for the final goal. Have the final goal in mind and then march. I am thankful to say we have grown year over year. I think there was one year that we plateaued, did about the same sales that we did the previous year. Other than that, through the 11 years, we've seen steady growth by 20 to 30% each year, largely due to volume, just the more jobs that you do, the more people are sending you referrals. So we kept hiring all that time. I will fast forward to today. We're hoping to reach the $2 million level this year, extrapolating forward. We have 18 painters in the field. So we have grown quite a bit from those early days where we had two painters, but we did it one man at a time. And we usually hired one to two per year, counting for training time. And that's how we've steadily grown through the years. We grew in those early days, we grew by about 150, maybe $200,000 a year, adding on one to two people per year. We roughly think about an employee bringing in 100000 fairly easily. It's usually a little higher than that, about 110000 in top-line revenue per employee. So we grew by roughly $200,000 a year. And I felt like that was a good growth pattern for us. We were learning the school of hard knocks. I don't have a business degree. So just learning how to do business all along the way. I don't know that I could have scaled faster for me. I know a lot of people do, and there's a lot of people smarter than I am too. But for our infrastructure, handling all the incoming calls and doing a good job with planning jobs, tracking our job costing, keeping materials ordered, I don't know that I could have grown any faster. We were very happy to reach, I don't remember the year, maybe 2016, 2017, we finally reached our million-dollar goal. And I think that's a funny thing in our industry. There's a lot of people that just, I just want to do a million dollars. It's just yeah. a nice round number. Yeah. And I think a lot of people in our industry kind of feel like that number means I'm successful. Like I finally reached it. Yes. The scary part about that million dollar number, as I learned through coaching with you and really in the industry, everybody knows a million is a very scary place to be. It is a very low profit number. <laughs> You've <laughs> right. got a lot of guys, at least usually eight to 10 guys in order to get to that number. So you've got a lot of projects running every day, but you can't quite afford all the other positions that you need in terms of maybe a, an administrative position back at the office, answering phones and handling the day-to-day, -day. maybe a project manager out there running. 
And then, of course, a salesman. And you can't afford any of those positions at that million-dollar level. Yeah. There's not enough profit, uh, assuming your family is taking a considerable amount of the profit. Yeah. So when we got to that million-dollar level, we realized all of those things I just said. Great place to be. Let's celebrate. But boy, let's continue to grow. We have got to get through Death Valley. Yeah. Just this absolute wasteland of profitability. And we were faced at that time with the decision, like a lot of other people are, do we scale back or do we press forward? Do we cut back to just a manageable six-man crew, seven-man crew, and we'll just run it and I'll take the money that I'm taking, I'm happy with what I'm being paid, and just run a mid-sized company? Or do we press through that, lean into it, really push into hiring uh, overhead positions in order to keep scaling? So let me ask you about that moment, right? So your temperament, since I know you, but share a little bit about, are you the scale back and be comfortable? Or are you the, let's blow it up? <clears throat> My wife wishes <laughs> that I could be calm and be comfortable. I am blessed to have ADHD. I, I consider it a superpower. It is frustrating at times. And I recognize that for the people in my life. But no, I cannot be calm and sit back and just relax and enjoy a nice small business. And part of that reason is I feel like I'm an entrepreneur and I see opportunity everywhere. And I can't not realize an opportunity that's right in front of my face. Can't not reach out and grab it. If the fruit mm -hmm. is hanging, I have to have it. Yeah. And so the market was also telling us we, we are in a unique market here very little competition, almost no competition. So the market was telling us we're taking 30 to 40 calls at that time. What do you do with them all a day? I'm sorry, 30 to 40 calls a day. We were booking 10 to 15 estimates a day. I couldn't even keep up as a salesman, let alone our field team. We were months and months behind all the time, which really is generally our MO. We're usually three to four months behind at all times all year round, which is not good. That's, I'm not necessarily bragging. I'm just trying to give an image of how much volume there is in our market. And that frustrated me because I, I don't like to tell a good person, not only can I not help you, but I don't even know where to send. There isn't another yeah. option. You may have to yeah. paint it yourself. Yeah. So right there is an interesting thing. I'm just going to hit pause here for a second. And some of you that just heard that three to four months, one of the things that when you get in these industry circles, another measurement of success is people like to talk about how far they're booked out. But if yeah. you're booked out three to four months, I'm going to just challenge you, both Mark and those that are listening, that you actually don't understand your pricing model. So you've sold future work at today's prices, and you've also eliminated the ability to capitalize on opportunities as they come. So what we really encourage people to do is get outside their comfort zone and understand that supply and demand. It still works, right? It doesn't matter what you're selling paint jobs or selling Twinkies, right? If you don't have enough of it, then you should raise the price and then then you'll have some equilibrium. So that's excellent. Before we move on, Mark, just tell me a little bit about your company's product mix. What do you do? Yeah. So we call ourselves a residential painting contractor and we really focus on repaints. We may do one new construction a year, like one project but very little new construction, almost entirely residential repaint. We have about a 30, 35% commercial mix in there as well, which 
what we consider commercial. These are our residential customers that also own businesses. And they say, hey, can you come paint my lawyer's office or doctor's office or the dentist's office? And, sure. and that's what we call commercial. Nothing heavy industrial, really. But yeah, residential okay. commercial. And your labor mix is? We're entirely employee model. And I love to fight people on this subject. I know there's <laughs> lots of different markets. And of course, larger cities may afford more opportunities than us out here in the rural Midwest. But we're 100% employee only. Yeah. And what does your org chart look to like today? Who, who what, Who's on your administrative team, your operational sure. team? So right underneath me, we have a, we, we flux between calling her office manager and operations manager, depends on the day. She is our administrative professional, Shannon. She's right underneath me. So she is kind of our central, grand central station, if you will. She handles all the incoming calls, scheduling, but she's also in charge of customer communications. So she has a finger on the pulse of every project, knows what's going on when people have questions, kind of everything runs through Shannon. So she's a very key person. My wife, Nicole, is our CFO. She is excellent at bookkeeping. In fact, we're all pretty scared of her because to the penny, she knows where everything is and where every project landed. And that's an extremely valuable thing to have as well. She's also our tech expert, which is great because I am not. Yeah, yeah. So those two ladies are in the office full time. We have a project manager, Bill, who's one of our long tenured employees. He's also been painting for 20 years, very much a leader, alpha male type. And he runs the projects. So everything out in the field is directly under his supervision. He largely spends his day Going from job site to job site to check and make sure we're on schedule, give advice, give tips in sequencing, and making sure we're always meeting customer expectations. But sometimes he'll park himself for a few hours if there's a difficult task, or he's also a great drywall expert. So if somebody needs a crazy repair or a texture matched, he will bounce between them and help move that project along. So he's a pretty invaluable part of my team as well. He's our boots on the ground, helping the projects run smoothly. And he also decides which crew is going to go to which job. So him and Shannon work closely together. I have a full-time salesman here in Mount Vernon who handles all the sales to completion and helps Shannon get those ready for production. And then we've got our field team, which we have six crew leaders uh, running 18 guys. Okay, great. So let's talk a little bit about your culture and it has, as it relates to, um, as you describe, rural Illinois, Midwest. How have you built your team? Who are you looking for? And what attracts people to your organization? What is your magic sauce that internally that people like to work for men and white? Yeah, I appreciate the question because it actually speaks to the central superpower of our entire company is our team. And I don't mean that just pandering. We have chosen to grow our team with non-skilled workers, meaning I think there's only been twice in our company's history that we hired a painter that had previous skill. So that kind of flies in the face of a lot of people. Why in the world wouldn't you hire a painter? And I think also most people know the answer. It's breaking bad habits. It's overcoming pride. There's so many things that I don't want to have to deal with. I really prefer to get somebody of good character and teach them to do it our way from the ground up. So that means 
usually people who have never worked, they might've worked in the trades, but never worked as a painter or drywall finisher in, in the past. I want to train them our way. And then also we're generally hiring young. I'd say most of our team is under the age of 25, but almost every member of our team is between the ages of 20 and 30. So it's a very young, I guess, millennial type of person, but that's our look. That's what we want. And we've actually based our entire image of our company off of that hardworking, pleasant, cheerful youth. That's what we want our face to be out in the company. And it's worked really well for us. Awesome. So tell me a little bit about what you would say your role is in the company. So you talked about some salespeople. So is it fair to say you're not really doing the estimates anymore? You have people to do that? I neglected to say I need to backpedal for just a minute. We also opened another location earlier this year. About an hour south, we have another market, major population center. So we opened a satellite location there. And we've got a four-man team operating out of that location and a full-time salesman in that location as well. So the two salesmen report to me. I guess I'm the sales manager. I wouldn't say they need me every day, but usually two or three times a week, there's a question or an oddity on a project that they'll just want another eye on. Occasionally, I'll go with them if it's a large project that they don't feel comfortable with. But for the most part, we're communicating via group me, texts, emails, now, take sure. a look at this. I've got this many hours. Do you think this is appropriate? Check yeah. out my material on that project. So I'll double check. But for the most part, they run independently. And I, I'm really happy with that. That that so frees up my time where I'm not driving all over Southern Illinois to look at projects. Yeah. So let's dig into that. So what was the impetus to create another location? How was that birth? What was the thought process? And And what... And I know you're only four or five months in, but tell us a little bit about that process on the front end and in hindsight, what's working and what do you still think needs to get better? Well, again, some people need to understand everybody thinks their market is unique. The unique factor in my market is we are extremely rural. My hometown that we operate out of, our main location is 16,000 people total. The Next market to the south is the next largest city, and I think they're at 15,000 people. So very similar size, but we're spread out here. There's not a large population center. Really, the reason for that location is we kept getting calls for work from that area. It also was severely underserved in the contractor market, and we were trying to service that area about an hour away with our team from here. And everybody knows that's very difficult to do profitability-wise. A lot of windshield time, a lot of drive time, late evenings, getting home. Nobody wanted to drive to that market. So that's what perpetuated our decision to say, hey, let's just service that market from the market and have another location. As a side note, it also affords us another population draw in the wintertime just to make sure that we've got plenty of interior work. Again, very small town up here. That may be different from a lot of people listening. We We've painted for almost everybody. And I mean that literally. When we drive through a neighborhood, there's only two or three homes that we haven't painted in. So we just wanted a bigger draw of more homes that we have never touched before. So that, that's what led us to that decision. Yeah, awesome. So what was the process that you went through on the front end to decide if you were going to do it, when you're going to do it, how you're going to do it? What were some of those details? Oh, boy, we sought a lot of industry counsel sought out C4C's 
opinion, of course, as our coach. Talk to Lisa Moon, who has multi-sites, and another couple contractors who have tried to open other locations. We really wanted to go into it uh, with eyes wide open. My wife knows how I am, and she knows I, I very well will do something I'm not quite prepared to do yet without all the thinking. So she did make sure that I promised her that we would do a, a an investigation into the cost, looking at all the things that we would need to do before that happened. We've actually been looking to open this for about two years and finally pulled the uh, trigger this June was our opening day. Okay. And so what were the things that, that you needed to do to open that area? What were the, was it, was it staffing? What? Tell me a little bit about yeah. what you needed to do and how you did it. First of all, we did some polling with the referral sources and of course, any customers we were working for down in that area, just to make sure that there, we really were needed as much as we thought we were. We did an accounting of all the contractor services in that area that provided painting services. And that helped us determine that they really were severely underserved. We started a marketing program about a year ago and started running television ads and targeting Facebook ads to that market specifically. Uh, hey, we're coming. This is mm -hmm. about to be big. We're going to be here. So we tried to prime the pump about a year before we even arrived. And then real estate, trans just looking at what real estate would cost us, looking at what the rent might be, trying to factor all of our expenses before we got there. Of mm -hmm. course, we've tried to keep low, but there's certainly expenses when you're mm -hmm. expanding. The nice thing is we chose to use our existing office and office staff. So all the phone calls that are coming from that area are still coming to our existing office. So we did not have to expand our administrative costs. I don't have a separate office for that area. It all comes to one central hub. And five months in, it seems to be working really well. Yeah. So since using your centralized office to do the administration tasks, the lead processing, the accounting, all of that stuff's going through the main office. So you sit, you're having a, some savings there because you don't need to duplicate those tasks. And exactly. then who's, who's selling and who's running that division? We have a, a salesman that lives in that area. He had actually come up here to train for about a year prior to us starting down there. So really got to know him pretty well. He's a great salesman, <clears throat> very conscientious. So I knew he was the right guy to sell. But I still had a production problem. And so we actually, we took one of our existing crew leaders. Actually, earlier in the podcast, I mentioned he's one of the ones that was with me from the very beginning. He's one of my first employees back from 2011. And I sat down with him and his wife to talk about the opportunity of starting this new location in Marion. But I really wanted him to move. I wanted him to pick up his whole family and move to that area because I didn't feel like he could service the area well driving an hour. And he took us up on it. So he actually moved his entire family in order to head up that operation. And he is our project manager and he's running all the projects in that area. Awesome. So what are the things that you think will be important in the future there to have it achieve what you want it to achieve? I think continued close oversight just to make sure that our estimates are accurate. We're doing accurate job costing to make sure the jobs are profitable it's a very similar situation to what we found here as we scaled through 2011 up to now, even in Mount Vernon. I think we're going to have a volume problem. I think there's way more work than we have capacity to do. We're already experiencing that. And I think our biggest challenge is going to continue to be 
hiring and training at a rapid pace. Yeah. So taking a turn back towards your growth, the 11 years, what are some of the things that you really learned and had to really adapt or change as you grew? And uh, what are some of the things that you had to delegate out or stop doing that would that kept you from being what the company you wanted to be? I don't think I'm unique to the industry. I was very short-sighted in the beginning. I really just thought, well, I'll just get a whole bunch more jobs and then we'll make a bunch more money. I thought it was as simple as that. It's simply a volume problem. If I had more mm-hmm. customers, then I'm going to make a bunch more money. And I think trying to answer your question, that was my biggest struggle in those 11 years is growing as a leader and as a business owner, obviously transitioning from being a painter to being a business owner, which is an entirely different job description in itself, but also understanding that with growth comes all kinds of monumental challenges, overhead being one of the more important ones, but realizing that boy, the volume's not the problem. There's as many jobs as I want to have, but doing those jobs effectively, keeping our sense of that mom and pop feel. I want my customers to feel like they're just calling a friend to come paint their house, but they're actually calling a fairly large organization at this point, but I don't want them to feel like they're being funneled through a machine in order to get their project done. I want them to feel like they're still calling their friend Mark to get a project done. It doesn't look like it used to look, but I want it to feel the same way. Yeah. So we call it the Sam Walton effect. I I want the Walmart, but I don't want it to look like Walmart currently looks. Well, we are about halfway through this episode of the Beyond a Million Dollar podcast from Consulting for Contractors, and we still have some great content left for you. Before we get to that, though, I wanted to let you know about some resources that are available to you via the show notes. You'll find links to our website, social media outlets, and highlights of this show. You'll even be able to schedule a discovery call with Scott and our team to find out how consulting for contractors can help your contracting business. It's very low pressure. We'll ask you just a couple questions, see what your current situation is, and then get you started toward the contracting business of your dreams. The best part about it, it's completely free. So just click on the link in the show notes, or you can visit our website at www.consulting4contractors.com and reach out to us there. Again, that website is www.consulting4contractors.com. Now, here's the remainder of the show. Yeah. So I, one of the hard things for me is when I know, I know Mark pretty well. He's a, someone that I would consider a friend besides yeah. a client. But Mark is classic entrepreneur. And entrepreneurs chase shiny objects every day, right. something new, and follow through sometimes can be lacking. And so if that's you, Mark's a kindred spirit. And I guess one of the things I I want to say about Mark, and maybe he'll speak to it a bit, is I would say over the last four months, maybe, we've seen, I've seen a lot of growth because one of the challenges is um, he's pretty high functioning. So when something is balls dropped, he'll pick it up. And then it typically it causes him to miss something else. And so Mark was continually getting in trouble for not doing something like attending a meeting with his staff, because in fact, he was doing something that someone else didn't do. So one of the things we talk about a lot at C4C is the Michael Hyatt concept of automate, eliminate, delegate. And and I've seen Mark really grow in his delegation and stepping back 
from the sales role and letting his people really do it. Now, I'm not there every day. I'm sure he still gets his nose into things he probably shouldn't. But what I think, one of the things that I think has been a big growth that I want the audience to hear is if you're going to grow in a significant way, and he's talking towards the $2 million this year, you are going to have to stay in your lane and ascend to more of a CEO level and mentor and be more leadership and monitor your data and let your people do their thing or else you're going to get stuck, quite frankly, probably just being unprofitable because you're paying them to do that stuff, but then you're doing it anyhow. So what, you know, I guess Mark, Mark, you can say something towards that end if you want, but Mark would never say that and maybe he doesn't even understand it. But as from the coaching side, I see it clearly that he really has leaned into the discomfort of going, okay, I'm going to let these people do this and I truly am going to stay out. And I think it's working for them. And I think their numbers are starting to show that. Mark, do you agree with that? I do. I do. And I'm enjoying my leadership journey. I still have a very long way to go. I will say that's been an interesting case study in that a lot of the guys that are with me have been with me from the very beginning. And I think that in and of itself, while it can be a good thing, can also be a real struggle as you are trending towards that CEO level. I used to work in the trenches with these guys. I think that's been a cool thing that we've done culturally is I tend to overshare information, which gets me in trouble sometimes. But I do feel like we've done a great job in our crew leader meetings and in our staff meetings to inform, educate our staff as to why we're doing what we're doing. We're not just adding another truck or adding more staff just to say we're bigger. We're trying to get them to see the larger picture. And ultimately, the larger the pie, the larger the slices. So we keep saying, if you want to make more money, if you want to keep financially moving forward in your life, this ship has to get bigger. And the market is telling us it needs more help. So we're going to continue to grow. But I really feel like we've done a good job educating our team. And they have bought in to what we're selling and why we're doing it. And therefore, they have supported me as I've backed off and I stopped doing that thing that I used to do. And now I'm not doing sales. And although I get some good natured ribbing sometimes, what is it you do here anymore? Mm -hmm. We finally gotten to a level where now we have people doing all the individual tasks and I get to just work on the business. That's a great place to be. And it's a secret weapon that a lot of businesses never get to. Yeah. Now to that end, one of the things we talk about a lot is as you're scaling your business, and as you just addressed, you used to be one of them in the trenches, having lunch, painting stuff, and now you're at a point where actually you're not even seeing them very regularly at all. And that can be a problem. And I talk to owners about that, about specifically how to fill that social interaction void that your team is inevitably going to feel because, hey, where's Mark? Hey, we used to be buddies. This used to be a family business and I don't even see the guy anymore. So what do you do in your company that helps fill that void, that helps you stay connected and help them feel like they're on a team even though you're not in their face day-to-day interacting with them? Sure. It starts at the leadership level. We do have a crew leader meeting every Friday morning. So that's a good time. We have breakfast and all just pitching in and chiming in about the week, talking about specific projects. And then we look forward to next week's projects and talk those through. But that gives us a time of fellowship at a leadership level that we're all pretty tight and have a thumb on each other's pulses. We know how everybody's doing. 
for the rest of the team, we only have a monthly staff meeting that we all get together, have some food and share just company goals and some KPIs that we think are important to share as a team. So that's a cool networking time. And then quarterly, we just do a staff outing, whether that's a golf outing or bowling or go throw some hatchets. We'll just Mm -hmm. do something outside of work, which again, with the young nature of my team, a lot of these guys are hanging out on the weekends anyway. Most of them are gamers. We actually really like video gamers. Good eye-hand coordination. Video gamers, for the most part, make good painters. And so they're always gaming and talking with each other. They're actually really good buddies outside of work too. And I think that helps our entire culture just be bonded and tight and they're bought in. And I think it's funny, there's been a cool transition I want to speak to also. I'm really not bragging. I'm just saying it's a, it's an interesting byproduct. As I've backed out, I'm not involved in the planning. I'm not involved in the scheduling. I'm not involved in the sale. Not only do I not know what job you're at today, I've never heard of that job because I wasn't involved in it. And I'm so out of the loop at this point that the guys laugh at me when I show up. What? Why are you here? Why are you here? <laughs> I don't know anything about the job. What's I don't wrong? Know the name of the customer. <laughs> and it's usually I'm just bringing them a snack or just stopping by to say hi. But I think that's a cool place to get to also in that the guys, it's not about me anymore. And I think it used to be, you know, I was so central mm-hmm. to every yes. cog in this business and sometimes to its detriment because I'm not an incredibly organized person. It shouldn't have been on my shoulders. But I think the guys are, they've just bought into the system. If they have a question, they're going to call Shannon or Bill because they know I don't have the answer. Yeah. They wouldn't waste their time with me. Yeah. Great point. And I, that's something I want everyone to hear is as you're growing, we're, we're really trying to target this to people that are scaling and blasting through the million dollar zone. You're going to need to make sure you continue that connection and build that community with your team as you move out of their day-to-day life, just like we spoke about. So I love your rhythm, Mark, with the crew leader meetings. I love your monthly all-team meetings. I love your quarterly events. I think that's a really nice rhythm. And a lot of times we hear people uh, um, forsake those events because they either think people don't enjoy it, which is culture. So you got to create that environment for them to enjoy it. Secondly, they don't want to spend the time and pay the money for people to be sitting in a building doing something. And what I think is well-documented is you will reap a benefit from that community building. And that's where culture happens. Yeah. I love that rhythm. And I can't speak to other businesses if they have large age demographics, but especially the millennial generation, they want to be a part of a movement. They want to support something that they believe in. They don't just want a nine to five job that just pays the bills and doesn't, they really want to be a part of building something successful. And I think we've given that. The other thing I just want to touch on is that you're maybe slightly top heavy right now at 2 million. You're not terrible, but it's obvious to me. And I thought maybe you just could speak to how far can you go with this team? So you've, you have salesperson, project manager in your second location. You have salesperson, project manager parent location, you have office staff, you have CFO, you have you. So what's your future? What's your vision? Yeah, I can already see some of the listeners that are mathematically minded running the numbers like he can't afford all that he has. And you're right. We have very low profitability right now. (laughs) Yeah, 
It's funny though, there are levels to business. And I think we're going through another valley here of low profitability in that we did decide to scale a little sooner. We did that strategically and we did that with eyes wide open. We knew that we were stretching to the absolute limits of our budget to afford the positions that we are currently affording, but we are at ground zero with our ability to scale. And that's what I'm really excited about. A lot of companies I've observed through the painting industry will just max out everybody. First of all, they max out themselves. Maybe through extreme hustle, you can grow a business to one five, one six, one eight, just doing it all yourself. I didn't want to live that kind of life, but you're not going to be able to scale through that. Eventually you're going to have to hire. And then you're hiring at such a high level. We're already so inundated with work. It's a tough training environment. So we chose to scale up early. We are top heavy, but now we've got the right butts and the right seat on the bus. And from this point, we can grow exponentially. Now we may need a little more administrative help in an assistant form just for call volume as things continue. But my project manager could double his amount of projects that he's managing and he could still handle it. My administrator could handle double the call volume without too much effort. CFO the same way. We feel like we've got a a strong team to build the next layer, get up to the 3 million, maybe $4 million level. Yeah. Just as a point of reference, they're still making plenty of money to pay the owners. It's just not Mm -hmm. the excess net profit that we used to and we were smaller, but it'll get, it'll come back. People ask me all the time, can I afford to do this? You have to make a plan. And we did that. We made a plan with Mark and Nicole and we created break-evens and we said, how much do we have to do in the new area just to break even so we don't have to take any out of our current operating? And we've done all that planning. And so we know what we have to achieve to be minimally viable and we're on track to do that. So it's not just like we said, oh, hey, let's go put an open sign out in a new territory and it happens. There's a lot of planning and using your data though, I think that's, it's really a predictable thing. And that probably is the most important lesson I've learned from C4C and really in painting business as a whole, in order to have a successful painting business, you have to know your numbers and you have to make database decisions. And, uh, I tend to be an emotional thinker, an emotional feeler. And if I found a good guy, I'd hire him because I felt like we needed another guy. Or if we lost a guy, like, eh, I don't think we need to hire right now. I think we're okay. Those were all emotional-based decisions, not financially or data-driven decisions. And I think that's one of the great things C4C's helped us with is really break everything down. Ultimately, it comes down to billable hours. It's not even jobs. And I love the analogy. It's kind of like Moneyball. It's not really about winning games. It's about getting players on base. When you break it down to its minutest point, we just need to hire people that get on base. And that's exactly Mm -hmm. how we've decided to run our painting business. I need people who can get me billable hours. Of course, I need the job done to get paid from that job. And we love to successfully complete projects. But on a smaller level, I need billable hours. And every part of my business is run from a billable hour perspective so that we know when we need to hire and or maybe over higher, and they're no longer emotional decisions. Yeah, before we get your final thoughts, I just thought it's always interesting just to hear quickly what your tech stack is. And of course, I realized asking you, you might not know. I'm just kidding. Of course you do. And <laughs> I'm if you don't, fairly I'll... aware. I'm fairly aware. I think one of the greatest pieces of tech 
is monday.com, which we hired C4C to help us implement, which was really a cool experience. Not only did they help us actually purchase and set up the software, but then we had a period of, I want to say two or three months of training, weekly and bi-weekly meetings to to go through because monday.com is an enormous program that does so much. It takes a long time to learn all that it can do, but that's become our central hub. That's where all of our systems run through. A lot of zaps are coming into or out of that program, causing us not to have to put as much data entry in. So we love monday.com. We also actually simultaneously switched from Estimate Rocket to Paint Scout for our estimating software because it integrates so nicely with monday.com. And boy, that has been nice. I would say we're actually closing more projects because of Paint Scout, simply because of the features in Monday of moving that along, making sure we've checked on it. It's just a cool system linearly that walks you through the bid process and follow-ups to make sure that you're closing the project or not. Yep. Nothing gets lost. GroupMe is our group communication out in the field. Using You Can we're Book s- Me or Acuity? Yeah, we're using Acuity through the website. And that's okay. gone. Scheduling. Yeah, pretty okay. well. We have a lot of people booking in the evening hours when we're closed. MailChimp? Yes, MailChimp is very important for email blasts. We have a monthly newsletter that goes out. And if you're not doing that, boy, I'd highly recommend you engage somebody to help you with a an electronic newsletter. We get a lot of engagement from that. And I don't think there's ever a newsletter that goes out monthly that doesn't end in a couple phone calls and projects being scheduled. Yeah, Just true. a good touch. Yeah. And then QuickBooks Online and yes. tied into that now is the QuickBooks time, the old T-sheets. And I think that's Yeah, that's it. right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. T-sheets Excellent. for the guys or QuickBook time. Awesome. This has been a great conversation. Before we wrap up, just, and you've said it a couple of times, but just as a last thought, what are a few things or thoughts that you might give the emerging or struggling or scaling growth-minded contractor that is maybe at 700s or 800s and just choking out right now and wondering how they could ever get past that? What would you tell them and how would you encourage them? Yeah, at that level, I think one of the most important things off the top of my head is you have got to invest in your team, not only from a tech perspective to make sure they're doing a great quality job, but you have to engage in them in your vision you really have to get them to buy into what it is you're trying to grow, why you're growing it, and then how you're going to grow it. If you're fighting a team and fighting your way through Death Valley, I don't see any way of success through that. I think having employee buy-in, at least with your core leaders, is going to be incredibly important to help you transition through that. I cannot imagine going through that valley or that time without a coach. Coaching was incredibly beneficial to me, not only to learn the things that I didn't know, but sometimes just encouragement, just to say, hey, I've been where you've been. There is light. Let's do these things. And oftentimes I would call you and I'd be frustrated about a particular thing and you'd help me think through that in the correct way. And also to be looking two years from now, that thing that you're obsessed with right now is not going to be a thing. And mm. the perspective that a coach provides really helped me emotionally get through some of those tough times as well. And then also I would, I would advise against having a Superman mindset. A lot of us, people who have gotten a business to that level are pretty strong 
and we tend to just shoulder everything and put it on mm-hmm. ourselves. I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to mush my way through and uh, consequences be damned. And I think that's a very dangerous mindset and you'll end up hurting yourself long term. I think having a strategy and a plan and not being afraid to reach out for help or even hire something that you're not excellent at would be my advice. Awesome. Mark, I appreciate you investing some time to help your peers. And I hope that people that listen to this get some encouragement that, uh, yeah, you're not alone. And Mark's testament to that you can do it. He had to do it twice, but he's doing it better this time. Love, Love your spirit, love your friendship. And I appreciate you being on the podcast. Absolutely. Appreciate you too, Scott. Thanks for letting me be a part of this today. Excellent. Thanks. Well, thanks again for joining us on the Beyond a Million Dollar podcast. If anything you heard on the show today intrigued you, or if you're just interested in getting in touch with Scott, please visit the show notes. You can click on the discovery call link to get started. We'd love to find out more about you, your company, and how consulting for contractors can help you grow your business to a million dollars and beyond.